he was just walking around and then I saw this boy that I'd seen the night before I saw him run and then I witnessed him getting shot Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is author and sex trafficking survivor, Annika Lucas. She's the author of the important and powerful recent book, Quest for Love, Memoir of a Child Sex Slave. First, a warning. What Annika reveals here about the extreme organized child abuse that she was sold into at the age of six is both horrifying and deeply unsettling. It takes courage to look at the dark, ugly truths that underline the power structure of our society. Annika's revelations challenge us to do just that. It's also the first step towards healing. As Annika's dark journey to healing proves, heinous suffering can also unlock hidden spiritual treasures of transcendence and unconditional love, which it did in her case. It's my great honor to welcome author, speaker, survivor, and advocate for sex trafficking victims, Annika Lucas, as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. My mother was single when I was born in 1963. She was abusive from my birth onward. She was married when I was three. And um, from the age of uh, just around my sixth birthday, she started to sell me into what was the, say, national branch of an international network of uh, pedophiles and um, Satanists. So um, the first three years in the network, I actually was used locally and I was also considered, um, I guess, what you would call expendable as a child. Um that's to say that my life was worth really nothing at all. And then, um, let's say an international guest who was um, a big shot, I call him in the book, uh, in the international network and also someone who's very visible on the world stage uh, at the time became um, interested, took an interest in me. Was I was gifted to him and he took an interest. And then I was trained to become his uh, sex slave. Uh, but that included to be trained for life. Uh, so I was taken to actually various places in the United States uh, also to be um, trained into, you know, taken with him personally to his homes and sailing uh, just to familiarize myself with uh, the lifestyle. Uh, I was taught about art. I was taught about good food, um, how to eat. I was taught about good clothes, how to pick them. We went shopping on Madison Avenue, if you can believe that. Wow. Wow. And you were at the time? I was nine. Incredible. Incredible. And uh, yes, and this person got off, uh, really got off on the fact that he could do that. He could bring a nine-year-old child whose first language was not English and everyone would think that he, you know, 
He didn't even have to say it, but in front of his staff, he once said that I was his niece from Paris. But it didn't matter because he was also in bed with me and the staff knew that. And nobody said anything or did anything. No, yeah. no one would have questioned this man at all. And it's also 1972. So I would say that there really was zero awareness about child sex trafficking at the time, that no one would have questioned anyone anyway, whether or not they were, f they were famous. Yeah, incredible. So incredible. I was uh, familiarized with the lifestyle uh, like that, but I was also being trained sexually. Um, and then um, I was sent to mind control training in Germany uh, with a doctor, that I don't name in, in the book, but was uh, his name is Hans Harmsen, who I believe, uh, to my understanding, um, was in charge there in this small facility uh, where certain special projects of this international big shot were being trained. I, in, fa I in fact, um, have spoken to other survivors that were also special projects of the same man, also trained there by the same doctor. Wow. Wow, incredible, incredible. And what was that process of psychological training like? Yes, it was, um, you know, the first three years in the network, I uh, think I had a sense of self in that I knew that what was being done was wrong. And even though I was brainwashed there also <laughs> and threatened and, you know, um, I still was able to sort of hold on to a sense of self that I knew secretly that it was wrong. But the mind control sort of breaks through all mental barriers to um, use trauma, induced trauma, in order to bypass the conscious mind to get straight to action. So to use the instinct of fight, flight, freeze, collapse, that instinctual state where all brain activity recedes to basically the reptilian brain. And then from there, where the senses are heightened and special gifts, you know, will be um, coming, coming out. You can hear things that you would normally hear. You can see things that you would normally see. Uh, you can be psychic uh, much more easily in that state because it's all about survival. So your instinct, your animalistic self takes over. And then that is used to direct this person and how they would want to train them. So there's always a basic training. I've spoken to, at this time, in-depth conversations with maybe about 170 survivors of mind control and uh, ritual abuse. So um, there seems to be a basic training that happens for everyone that is both uh, physical endurance training, but also uh, sex training. Yeah. And then... Um, it's like a form of torture, isn't it? It's Would, absolutely torture-based. Yeah, I, yes, I mean, I've, I've, spoken, I've spoken to other people who have gone through this, like in a military setting, right? Yes, and, often. And, and it's the mm -hmm. same kind of thing, where they absolutely. just break apart the, the sense of self, and they're just sort of reaching the subconscious brain yes. And, yes. And, and programming it directly. Exactly. Okay. And, and at a certain point, this big shot, he started to make uh, promises to you in terms of like a performing career. Is that, is that correct? Well, that was all to suit his own needs uh, in okay. the end. That's yeah. to say that he wanted, yes, he had plans for me and he was very um, happy to be the kind of a creator of this persona, 
right? That was a big trip for him. Yeah, that was big ego. Behind the scenes, he liked to have all this control behind the scenes, which obviously wasn't just me. It was also presidents. It was also, you know, he had a lot of influence behind the scenes and he liked it that way, even though he was also a public figure. And I... um I was to become for him, I, I was trained to uh, to seduce the most powerful men in the world. And I would be doing that in my adult life as well, my young adult life. And then um, seduce them to ultimately spy on them for him. So I needed the platform just to attract those extremely powerful men. Because without a platform, I would be a nobody and then who cares? Right, right, right. Right, and so the so, platform was was this was this was a performer. It was going to be a performer. Yes, and the platform was based on my you know uh, my gifts were sussed out pretty quickly, and so I was to be an actress and also a singer in in France, um, and super sexy. You know, I was to be sort of a sexual animal. You know. Um, sensual, you know, natural, you know, like rolled out of bed kind of beauty. The, the the slender, natural, you know, I'm just always ready to have sex kind of thing. I just love it, you know, that. Right. He obviously was preparing you knowing that there was a path that was already set up for you to follow, right? Yes, and that would ultimately benefit him, though, in this very petty way <laughs> that I, I was to being turned into a sexual stereotype to please sort of adolescent kind of men that, and everybody would though fall for it because I would be platformed. And then the, the everything that comes with the platforming of that, of course, is that you get the, the reward, which is that you get respect, even though you're naked half the time, you get, you know, treated like you're, you know, small celebrity. royalty, yeah, celebrity, sure. yeah, riches. Yeah. And, and those riches and that comfort was described very detailed. So I, I got a very clear picture of what it would look like. Very uh, attractive. N not that uh, I was being sold on it, rather that he was so excited about what he was doing and what he was creating that, you know, he was letting me in on all these things that would be mine. It wasn't to try to sell me. He just took for granted that I was, that I was going to s remain uh, on board. And then something happened. They, they, they wanted you to do something to sort of like as the ultimate test of loyalty, you, you could say in a perverted way. Yes. So they thought it was a great honor that I was able to have this mind control training. And somehow they figured out that probably through my father's side, which I, did, I didn't know my father, my biological father. I was from some bloodline that they revere. Uh, which I found out actually my my uh, um, my father was a composer of classical music and his family were Huguenots uh, came from France uh, and the name was Gaillard de Kerbertin so they were a uh, family in the nobility that fled to Holland and uh, uh, so there was definitely a blue blood let's say that as they call it but I didn't know any of this and they, they drew my blood, and I don't know how they could tell from drawing my blood that I was from a bloodline, but they did. They, they found out, and that was the first thing they did. So then I belonged, and then they were very happy about that, and then I could join, you know, this a special class of people. And then um, after about a year of various kinds of trainings that included some 
you know, it was international. It was not just in Germany. I was also taken to Germany. I was deployed, you could say. I was used with politicians of the time. Uh, I had to spy on them already. I had to go and tell my owner what they liked sexually or what their weakness was. I was trained to see all of that, to do all of that, to wind them around my little finger, you could say. And then I was um, uh, going to be inducted into their clan officially, you know, officially, unofficially, uh, through a horrific ritual. So for me, I had to, um, the ritual was, uh, well, it was very lengthy. It was over uh, maybe a week or so, um, in Italy. And I ended up having to, uh, having to, to kill. When Annika was six years old, her mother sold her into a Belgian pedophile network run by then Minister of National Defense, Paul Vanden Boynance, a popular right-wing politician who also twice served as the country's prime minister. In 1972, at the age of nine, Annika was gifted to a powerful American political figure and influencer who she calls the big shot in her book who trafficked her to the United States and afterwards had her trained at a mind control facility in Heidelberg, Germany. There she was subjected to intense physical torture, which shattered her sense of self, thus allowing her trainers to program directly into her subconscious mind. Denied her own thoughts, Annika was trained to be a wild French sex machine, utterly and animalistically abandoned to experience. During training, she had become the girl the big shot needed. Sexy, lighthearted, pretty, sophisticated, and fun. Sensing that this American was very dangerous, she knew that any thought she might have outside of his expectations would be perceived as a threat, so she couldn't step out of this persona, even for a second. The setting was an incredibly beautiful villa, in, an, in, in, a, in a very beautiful part of Italy on the Lake uh, Como. Uh, but it was outside, mostly. It was in the woods. And then during the night or during the day, whatever, when I was with men, when I was basically having sex with these men and then reporting about what they wanted sexually, uh, those were, at the time, 1972, we're talking, or 73, early 73, maybe, probably, uh, those were definitely the people that I, you know, I recognized were at the top of their fame at that time, and 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 royalty, and um, and they the treated top. this as it was normal. Not only that, I it really is a belief system where uh, it's the perversion of, of of godliness, but there is definitely something where they regale themselves and feel unity through these horrific acts. Right. Which Absolutely. I think, which is why I think it's so hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around this. It's like a complete inversion of you know what you're born believing, right? Yes, yes, and it's a lot. That's why the psychology I think is so important. To me, that's the key. The psychology is the key, and that's why I th- I thought your book was so was so amazing because it really it really captures you but it also horrifies you because it's it, it is a psychology that is so completely twisted 
And that's, it's part of the religion, the inversion. It's interesting because uh, they do believe opposites. You know, they do believe that bad is good, uh, to say it simply, or they do uh, believe that Satan is the Lord. You know, that when they say God, they really mean Satan. When they thank God, when they receive an award, they're really thanking Satan. Or um, So they, they think that Lucifer is the light, which of course is interesting, the name and everything. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, yeah. So... After you refuse to do what they ask you to do, which is to, you know, to kill a girl, I believe well, it is. It was, but I, I have to say that I did not refuse. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the, the killing. I, I, um, okay. The mind control training involves killing, and the training. makes sure that the way that you are indoctrinated means that you feel that if you don't do it, if you refuse, which is the first time, of course, you're going to refuse, it'll be worse for the victim. Like they will prolong the torture of the victim. So exactly. it's almost like a mercy killing. It is exactly that. Wow. Exactly that. Ugh. Oh, my God. Um. So... So something seems to go wrong there, right? And well, then they... I didn't, I didn't um, want to be part of their club anymore. I didn't want to pay that price. So I did go through with it. And then I was disgusted. I didn't want anything to do with it anymore. And the next time I saw my owner, I went against him, expecting to be killed. But then he sends you home, right? Well, he re he reprogrammed me. He had me reprogrammed. I was thrown. I mean, <laughs> I was tortured um, horrendously. I was not just sent home. I was um, uh, thrown in a cage. I was drugged and 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 um, uh, I, I was not. I, I I was not privately in a cage. And I was drugged and, 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 and dirty and, you know, and I was there for several days and I was humiliated uh, tremendously and, um, and then made to feel that that's who I am. And I was told also that, you know, I'm lowly and that I, that I was vulgar and that, the, you know, I, this is because I'm vulgar and born lowly because, you know, because I am this way. And then I was... Even um, chained up and, you know, basically the same doctor and my owner coming at me with, you know, again, this repetition uh, just to, to drive the message home that I didn't deserve any success, um, you know, in their eyes, the success meaning um, that I wouldn't become a star without their controlling it. So I was humiliated and made to feel that I'm worthless um, just to make sure that I wouldn't go out, you know, that, that I would never, if I survived. I, I, I had a lot of suicide programming also. Yes, uh, which is very common too, right? Right, very common. Very yeah. common. And, uh, but then I was sent back to the Belgian network. The Belgians didn't know what had happened. And then... I ended up being 
rescued a year later in Belgium. And of course, my book is that last year in the Belgian network. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What what a, what a, what an incredible, horrible experience. But so brave of you to come forward. So let's talk about the your book is uh, uh, like I said before. It's 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 amazing. One of the most powerful books I've ever read. Uh, let's talk about the Belgium network because uh, you were back with your mother, right? Yes. So you're back with your mother, and your mother, is, and you're going to school. You're, I think it starts when you're ten years old. Is that correct? It started the network um, started when I was six, or just around my sixth birthday. Oh, in the network in Belgium, it started at six. I was there for three years before I was picked out by this international person. That lasted about a year until I was basically kicked out and then uh, from away from the seat of power and then back to the Belgian network and then where I was there for another year and I was 11 when I was rescued there. Okay, so you're you're living at home, you're going to school. Some, usually. You're sometimes, and, and, and you're missing school a lot and nobody seems to notice or no authorities step in and seem to question your mother. But then at night, she's driving you to these castles near Brussels and for these parties. Yeah. And um, which is run by another very prominent man who later, I don't know if he was prime minister at the time of Belgium, but later became prime minister. And he was a minister, minister of national defense at the time. And he was prime minister twice. Paul van den Buynans is his name. He was a popular politician at the time. Yeah, he was. He had a long, illustrious political career. Yeah, I mean the depth of evil is uh, hard to fathom. Okay, so let's go to December 1973, and um, you meet this gentleman named Patrick, who, who's a young man, 20 years old, right? Kind of dashing. Driving, drives a, a Porsche, and you're, you're at these parties, and the, the thing about these parties is the men are just, it seems like they're just sort of hanging out, and it's the kids who are the uh, the sexual aggressors, because they've well, been we were trained, trained that way. You're yeah. trained that way, right? Yeah, not aggressors, obviously, but we well, were definitely uh, yeah. trained to trained make to the a, men feel comfortable. Right, right, which is so upside down and twisted again. So, uh, you know, here you have these kind of schlumpy middle-aged men, right? <laughs> and you've got these, uh, which I'm just imagining some of this. And, and my, my private thoughts there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and here are these kids who are 10, 11 years old, and they're, they've been trained to approach these men and make them feel attractive and comfortable and sexually virile and all that stuff. Right. And, and a lot of the a lot of the mind control training and the torture that we underwent was ultimately to make sure that our child self was dead, so that we appeared as these little adults. That's to say, dead, emotionally dead. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that that's what struck me about the whole story with Patrick, because you were sort of looking at this bl blonde, tall attractive man as possibly your savior, right? The, the, the person who is going to love you. Yes. Okay. And he absolutely uses that. Oh, absolutely. And um, he, end, he ended up, so he was being indoctrinated himself. Uh, his father brought him there. And, you know, he, 
he became known uh, later on in Belgium as a famous gangster um, or an infamous gangster, let's say. And his father very much pushed him into that into that role. So the father got to be, you know, the upstanding citizen his whole life who was, uh, who looked really good. And his son was the big criminal. And I did feel, uh, you know, obviously there was some connection with um, Patrick that was went a little bit deeper than the surface where I felt bad for him too i got to really understand him and and of course yeah, eventually well you, he was a, he was a tortured person as well yeah, yes that, and of yeah, course eventually he told me every yeah. he told me um everything that had happened to him which showed me that everything he had done was a repetition of what had happened to him patrick hammers was a 20 year old son of a nightclub owner and a member of a belgian pedophile network when annika met him He was tall and thin with striking good looks. As a boy, he had been sexually abused by his parents. Annika's training had taught her how to read a man's deepest desires, to detect his deepest fears and nurture his emotional wounds. She used these skills on Patrick. Their relationship, in Annika's words, involved, quote, intense cycles of extreme physical and emotional abuse mixed with ecstatic sex. One day, Patrick would muse about their future together as a couple, and the next hold a loaded gun to her head, ready to shoot if she failed to surrender to his needs. After several months together, Patrick Hammers made a deal that bought Annika's freedom from the pedophile network. Subsequently, he became addicted to cocaine and convicted of rape. After serving a few years, he was released and continued his life of crime with money laundering and a series of daring armed robberies. On January 14, 1989, he helped kidnap former Belgian Prime Minister Paul Vaden Boinance, the same man who he had struck the deal with to spare Annika's life. In 1993, Belgian authorities claimed Patrick killed himself in prison by hanging himself from a four-foot-three-inch radiator. And my mother, too. Uh, my mother didn't want to make me a criminal, per se, but she did have this constant negative projection where she saw me as evil, um, which meant that I deserved everything also. I want to go back to, um, it was the spring of 74, and um, you're, you're involved with Patrick now. You sort of have a, a, a confrontation with your mother where for the first time you sort of tell her she's no good. So what Patrick did is he presented himself, he's pretty psychopathic himself, you know, but he presented himself as an alternative to my mother because I was extremely attached to her. That's to say she could do no wrong for me. But he started to mess with that. And he started to to let me know that really she was no good. And even though I didn't want to accept that, you know, I sort of started to attach more towards him, to him, which was probably what he wanted. Of course, of course, yeah. So I Iso- isolate you again with just with just him. Yeah. Exactly, he's mm-hmm. the one who can love me, and he had taken me into this castle, whereas there had been a party the night before that was on the grounds, 
but not in the castle. It was in, 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 a, in, a, in a greenhouse. And there were many children there. And there, it was the only time I ever saw basically uh, immigrant children. Um, and this boy, I'm assuming that he was Moroccan. There were a lot of Moroccan um, immigrants in Belgium. And um, the next morning, I didn't know what was going on. It wasn't a party. It was weird. Um, it was only um, men of the nobility who were picking children, but they weren't necessarily doing anything with those children. So the next morning, all I saw was in the park from the window from inside the castle I saw one man walking around with his gun I heard shots I was wondering what was going on because it was early spring and not the hunting season as far as you know I could tell and he was just walking around and then I saw this boy that I'd seen the night before I saw him run and then I witnessed him getting shot. Uh, from the window quite far. But I just saw him fall. He was shot, shot in the back. Clearly he fell forward. And and he was just still. And I couldn't believe it. I, 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 I couldn't believe that he wasn't going to... I thought he was going to get back up. But it was just finished he he just never moved again and and also i didn't see anybody coming to him or anything i just saw him get shot and fall that at this time i was being protected by patrick from anything else he was making sure i wasn't getting raped by other men and he wasn't touching me himself so he was really grooming me uh very deeply you know yeah like yeah. everything was up to me i was experiencing this freedom <laughs> but i got i got angry uh, because of his extreme lack of care with what i saw and then as soon as uh, i was back in in the car with my mother i told her that she was no good and um she immediately threatened and said that she was going to leave me there next time i'm going to take you there that was her code i'm going to take you there that was her code or when she threatened me to punish me she wanted to help me know i'm going to take you there again that was her 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 code language threat threat punishment which of course she was going to do that anyway but yeah yeah, that's yeah. nevertheless what she said so she said next time i'm going to take you there i'm going to leave you there and then that is what happened yeah and you were just left there for almost a week wasn't it and then at the end, when she picked you up, she blamed it on you. Like, yeah. why didn't you walk home? As soon as she got me back, when I was in this, well, I had sort of naturally started meditating when I was there. And I'd had experiences and I had clarity from the meditations, uh, the, the stillness, um, there was nothing to do. So I had this clarity that had come to me by naturally sitting cross-legged basically and, and becoming still and feeling um, some help that way. 
and uh, seeing the light, seeing light and everything, and getting sort of like this 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 information uh, that was calming and soothing. And as soon as she came back, I was in the car. She uh, she acted very casually, like we were worried sick about you. That's. And that was clearly the line she fed my stepfather, who clearly also accepted it without question. And then that was the, that was the one time that I actually tried to confront, I tried to tell my stepfather. I had this, this deep belief that if he knew, yeah, he would, he do, would something. do something. Yeah. And that was shattered that night when I actually when I came back from five yeah. days, no food, looking um, haggard. My hair um, still a mess. Couldn't really um, cleanse myself, and I tried to tell him, and yeah. he didn't believe me. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Then it gets worse because you meet. There's this girl who's part of the Oriak family. Doriak family. Well, Lynch. that's a, a name uh, because she was a young girl uh, mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a victim also. I've changed mm-hmm. uh, the details around that, okay. so it's not a real name. But but the idea is that she was from a, an aristocratic family. Right? Yeah, she was, yeah. And she was, a, she was about your age. She was my age, yep. And then she sort of uh, has her own, uh, which is understandable given the fact that she was being sexually molested all the time as well. But she sort of turns on you. There's like a jealousy because of Patrick, and she turns on you. And you meet you meet this this group of boys who are you're a little bit older than you, who also rape you. But then you end up kind of one of them seems to be like uh, apologetic afterwards, right? And you start to form this relationship with him. Yes, and that's Peter. That's Peter. Yeah. Who was 14? 14. Okay. And so uh, this girl, who is called Florence in the book, um, she set up a rape. At an elite network orgy at a castle in Belgium, 10-year-old Annika met the Belgian gangster Patrick Hemmers, who was 20 years old at the time. Their relationship became psychologically wrought and complicated. He saw purity and honesty in Annika, which had never before been reflected by any authority figure. Expecting sex to come from her, a child, he waited for her to initiate it and meanwhile protected her from other network abusers. But Patrick Hammer's good looks roused a lot of envy, particularly from one girl Annika's age named Florence, whose aristocratic parents were in the Belgium network and allowed her to be abused. After Annika told Florence there was no sex between her and Patrick, Florence organized a gang rape by other working-class teen boys. The rape left Annika feeling deep shame and guilt and caused her to initiate sex with Patrick Hammers. She also struck up a friendship with one of her abusers, a 13-year-old boy named Peter. Trust between the two of them grew, and Annika and Peter had plans of leaving Belgium together so she could free herself from the pedophile network. But when Patrick, the gangster, learned about Peter, he killed him, leaving Annika feeling more powerless 
guilt-ridden and trapped than ever before. So I felt like I was in heaven because I was healing in this very beautiful place and I felt loved um, because he was caring for me. Uh, and what I wanted to say is that, so the place, this was uh, uh, Saint-Jean Cap-Ferrat and Cap-Ferrat is near Nice. And I wanted to say that in those circles that child abuse is actually rather normalized and and everyone is at least quiet about it so so i i experienced that very much there that yes we were um together and no one thought twice about it but then there is this scene uh you know where we're basically on the sailboat and then there's literally a boat a yacht that comes in and they can see everything and they yeah. just they and you're just actually love it. having sex yeah. he's having sex with a 10 year old 11 year old girl right and they're watching this and they love it it is absolutely normalized and again it's psychologically there's through the sexual abuse because yeah. if it's a culture of sexual abuse that means that children are sexually abused, and you saw, you read that also, you know, that uh, Florence was being sexually abused with yep. her parents right there. Yeah, yeah, at the parties. Uh, yep, by yep. her parents in public, um, so that these children are um, indoctrinated, and, and that the parents think that what they got, that's to say the sexual abuse, that's good enough. That's good enough for their children as well. That's to say this particular father um, of that this girl Florence he actually, I've heard him say that he he figured that he might as well be the one to, you know, not to, he didn't use the word rape, but to sexualize her because that was going to happen anyway. And so to prepare her for this horrible world, um, it was better that he was the one. So this is a a common uh, justification that pedophiles will use. Um, And of course, it's full of justifications, but it's basically that those child parts uh, who were abused, who were sexually abused and then felt lost hope, I think. Uh, The child who loses hope that they can ever be seen and ever be heard becomes completely loyal to the abusive parent. And then that means the only way to show that in adult life would be to either do the same, become that abusive parent themselves who now gets the power and gets, or to always be quiet about it and protect that abusive parent. And and then often mixed with, of course, with, which is a very common um, psychological result of sexual abuse is that unfortunately our bodies uh, go into freeze mode, you know, uh, to survive. And then there's experiences that we can have that, you know, it's not as if when you're a child, you can't have sexual feelings. That doesn't mean a child is psychologically and emotionally ready to have those experiences. And that is what creates the this, this split. But, but the fact of having those experiences of pleasure, let's say, or whatever kind of release that a child might experience, that is then used as... Basically, again, the rationalization that, 
it's really all right. And then the child also believes that it's all right. And if that child never gets a mirror, a reflection of the fact that this was wrong and the fact that, no, they were not ready. And there is all this fear as well that they're just trying to run away from. And, and then they were given, they're running away from this fear that really was part of this abuse, but they're actually given, being given privilege and entitlement as a way to escape the fear and all the, 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 the negative feelings that are disconnected from the experience, that's to say the betrayal, the uh, pain, the grief, all of that is cut off from the experience and is going to be projected onto the new victim. But in this case, when people are literally trying to get on top of the world with power, they can project it onto all of humanity. Because everyone is... Every, they have a constant justification because they actually do feel superior through their bloodline. And that superiority is a constant justification to commit harm. Right. And there's a disdain for humanity, right? Exactly. And that is because their own human, you know, that's to say their tender feelings, right. have been overridden. Yeah, destroyed. Destroyed. Yeah, yeah, the young parts that are that are feeling dead and hopeless. And and of course it all comes out of fear. So basically those are people who are weak. You have to understand that people who have a lot of power, there is no need for anyone to be a billionaire and not not be shown up as greedy for being a billionaire because any billionaire could eradicate hunger in one day, if they wanted to put their energy really there, you know, all that philanthropic is just a means of control. But you wouldn't be a billionaire if you wouldn't at least know and do your part. If, if that means to close your eyes, okay, but it's something, it's never innocent no, 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 at that level. No, 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 of course not. And going back to your story, you come back from your trip to the south of France and then you see Peter again, right? You confess to Peter, and the two of you realize that you've both been betrayed by Florence. And Peter turns out to be this, uh, at least this, this is what I got from this book, this sort of gentle, you know, sweet boy. Uh, you know, he did a terrible thing, and he's, he's somewhat ashamed of that. Uh, but he really does seem to care for you and, and wants to help you. Right, but he has very little resources himself. Um, being, being fourteen years old. Being fourteen years old and being from a like a, you know, lower middle class family or or whatever. Working it is. class, yeah. Working, working class. class. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you develop this friendship with him, which kind of, you know, gives you a respite, like an opening from the horror of this network that you're trapped in, right? With Patrick going completely crazy. And yeah. when Pat, when you tell Patrick, like he, he loses his mind and eventually kills Peter. Yes. Which is just horrible. And it also changes the dynamic of your relationship with Patrick, right? You've sort of broken in his twisted mind a bond, a, tr- a, a trust <laughs> that the two of us had together. 
Well, which he co was completely breaking on his end all the time, of course. Of course, so. but that doesn't matter. No, that didn't matter uh, anymore. He was in his crazy, you know, repeat stage from the position of power, uh, doing to me what had been done to him. And it turned out he had been having sleeping with your mother and with Florence and, and who knows who else. Yeah. So so um, I did go back to Belgium in 2005 and I found, I did find a death record of Peter. I ended up speaking with his father. So I, I wanted to do some research um, and so I, I hadn't really, really remembered his last name. So I found his name, Peter Bosmans, and he was born in 59 and he died in 1974. And his father still believed that it, that it had been an accident. Uh, that's to say that, uh, that's what Patrick told me that he died of an accident because what he did is he must have strangled Peter and then turned on the stove in the house and left the body in the kitchen and that was just accepted why else would he be he never told anyone so why else would he be dead for reasons of safety Annika has only revealed the names of some of the Belgian perpetrators who have died these include then Minister of National Defense Paul Vaden Boynance a popular right-wing Belgian politician who twice served as the country's prime minister, and Michel Nahoul, who served as a gopher for the elite, arranging for children by dealing with their pimps. Michel Nahoul was also a defendant in the Dutro case, which made headlines in Europe and the United States in 1996, when several children's bodies were found. The international press, in a book called The X-Files, reported on the Belgian elite ring that was responsible for the rapes and murders of many children. Eight years later in 2004, when the case finally went to trial, Michelle Nahoul was let off by the judge on the most serious charge of kidnapping the children, even though a majority of the jury deemed him guilty of the crime. Mark Dutroux and two more accomplices in his immediate circle, including his wife, were sentenced. All the testimonies regarding the existence of a larger elite pedophile network had been cut off from the trial and put in a separate file, which was closed two months later. Almost 30 people with evidence about the existence of the larger network have lost their lives in mysterious circumstances since. When things look absolutely gruesome on the outside, you sometimes you just don't know what's happening. So I'd had quite a bit of what I call help, presence that helped me f soothe, you know, soothe my nerves or just to give me some insight that I didn't feel was coming from me, but that helped me get through whatever I was going through. Um, and so there in that... <laughs> As things, increase. It starts to increase as things get more desperate because they're coming to a head, yeah. right? Because yeah. Patrick now is getting more erratic. His behavior is more erratic. It's more yeah. abusive. There's a lot of violence. And without Patrick, you have nobody to turn to. And now you're trapped kind of with this madman who's, who's falling apart, right? And then they have this awful, awful uh, parties, whatever you want to call it, and you're set up where Patrick initiates it 
and the other kids sort of turn on you. And yep. if you if you want to talk about if you can talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so Patrick clearly was um, planning. Uh, plan had clearly planned this, so he did beat me up uh, last time, and then brutally kicked me out of the room. But Florence was right on the other side, waiting for me. So uh, other kids, she was sort of the leader of that gang, but she always had a little more power because she was, like, say, from the nobility. So she got these other kids to then basically molest me or she molested me and she had she made them hold me down and uh and then eventually she she gives me she hands me over uh with the help of those children she hands me over to Michelle Nihu who had been sort of the middleman from the beginning and who was also defendant in the Belgian Dutroux case so mm -hmm. uh who got off in mm -hmm. that case, by the way, which was the case that was to expose yeah. the network, which yeah. did not happen at all. I remember, I remember reading about that in the New York Times and thinking, you know, oh my God. And then it just sort of disappeared. It disappeared. Eight years later, there was a trial and everything was focused on Marc Dutroux and, you know, and then Michelle Nihul got off. So Michelle Nihul, who had started, just started, um, when I saw him in 73, I started, 72, 73, I started to see him. Um, he ended up forcing some of the other children that had been, you know, part of this little group. You know, he basically was given the green light to kill me. And that was the idea that I'm now useless, you know, to the network. I'm now going to be uh, killed. And what he did because he was in charge of a lot of the children and training them. He takes uh, four children uh, with me to this secret room in, in the house of Van den Buenans, but you have to know Van den Buenans started out as a butcher. That's the beginning of his career was he was a butcher. So there's this, it's his house. It's houses in Brussels. There's a huge butcher's block in a, in a secret room in the house. And I was strapped onto that butcher's block where I was supposed to be uh, killed. And uh, the, the, the children are now being forced to torture me. Now, they were, with, they were mean before and everything, but these are victims as well, and they don't want to do this at all. Last thing they want to do. So they're forced to, to torture me, and they're being, you know, uh, told uh, in no uncertain terms that they're, they're being given instruments to torture me and they have to get to work. And Nihul himself, um, of course, uh, is very happy that he, that he, that he can um, uh, torture me. Uh, and, you know, uh, that torture was uh, quite intense. And it was, um, I don't know how long it went on, but it seemed like it was going really fast. And um, of course, I did have, again, uh, spiritually, uh, it, or maybe it was a physical, the hormones, I'm not sure, but I definitely was completely high. I, I didn't experience pain for the longest time. 
and and I enjoyed holding out because Nihul wanted to see me suffer, and I definitely enjoyed uh, not letting him see me suffer. Um, but eventually, I did start to give in. Uh, I lost hope, and then that torture was stopped. And I had, of course, no idea what had happened. And then found out later that Pat Patrick had been negotiating with Van den Boenans, who was the boss of the network, f to save me. What was the price that he had to pay for that? So he had to go to work for Van den Boenans, which meant he owed him one. Yeah. Or two, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they had a really weird history after that. Exactly. Which, it's interesting because Belgian press, very strange, Van den Boenans got caught for tax fraud. We're talking 14 years later. Gets caught for tax fraud. Gets a three-year suspended prison sentence. And a, a big fine name and disrepute, he goes he, he, he goes in and this appeal. is a man just just for, for everybody to be clear this is a man who had been prime minister twice yeah twice and minister of defense minister of national defense famous politician for 50 years <laughs> and it was like 130 over 130 counts of tax fraud <laughs> the laws he imposed on the people right right, right. It's breaking which he felt the whole thing, he, he, he expertly acted like he was a big victim of the whole situation and he would never forgive the people who did this to him and they made him, they humiliated him. So he was very angry and he really wanted to become mayor of Brussels uh, for his retirement sort of, and he couldn't, he wasn't allowed. Because of these charges. Because of these charges, uh, he, which he appealed, he goes, and then the strangest thing happened. He 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 was he was gone. He was kidnapped. There was a note left from a communist, uh, whatever. Van den Boenans, by the way, was an extreme right. He was on the extreme. He uh, technically he was sort of centrist right, the conservative party, but he had several ties with extreme right wing organizations and. He, w he belonged to many sort of secret groups and clubs that were extremely right-wing, fascist, uh, fasc he was a fascist. So um, he gets kidnapped. One month later, he's returned. He has the biggest press conference the country has ever seen. He's um, the star. Yeah. You know, he has sunglasses because he was in a dark basement. Right. So he's got all the public sympathy now. Unbelievably yeah. so. And... It was, he, so, so one, at one point he goes like this, qui m'a enlevé, meaning who kidnapped me? And he was so dramatic that a song was made about, from these words, and it was just all over, everybody just treating him like a hero, which was really funny because, of course, he had kidnapped himself. That was the irony. And then... Totally by accident, these overzealous cops get on the trail of Patrick Hamers and then get his own father 
the hypocrite who had was the good citizen to basically give him a give him give away his um, whereabouts and uh Patrick Hammers got caught in Brazil and uh ultimately that kidnapping which was by Patrick Hammers and his gang is still today mostly seen in that light in Belgium that you know this was actually what happened and then Patrick Hammers uh dies in prison. Mysteriously in prison, hangs himself, supposedly. Yeah. He hung himself from a four-foot-tall radiator. <laughs> and he was yeah. six feet tall. You know? Yeah. But obviously, the antecedent to this was the deal that was made over sparing your life. Yes. Right. Which was then considered because Patrick, even though he was young, and I was always wondering why does he get so much respect in the network was because he was very dangerous and he did kill people and he didn't hesitate. So now with his stupid uh, ideas about me, he is now weak. That's his weakness, right? Any heart that you have is going to be your weakness and that is, I think, where even though that was maybe the only good deed that Patrick Hammers ever did in his life, there is that that very deeply buried child in him that wanted somehow through me to be seen. Yes, and you saw glimmers of it. And especially as an adult, of course. I did connect I did feel very connected with him. But of course, I was a child, and so it was more as an adult that I really learned to understand the whole picture of how he had been sort of created, does the pressures, and then then it really becomes a question of there but for the grace of God, you know, I, who could know how we would be if we had those circumstances? Right, right, right. And so, um, and then, okay, he saves you, but... There, they step in and say, "Well, no, um, you you still need to pay a price. Like you don't get off so easy." And that's another horrible story. I don't know if you want to go into that. Uh, <laughs> I, I put put you through the ringer here. I'm I'm sorry. You, but, you really read the book. <laughs> yeah, I did read the book. Yeah, I did read the book. But let's say that, yes, I did have to go through another horrible thing, and then I had a near-death experience. Yeah, and then, but then you have this, this spiritual experience, which is very, very powerful, if you could describe that uh, for us. Thank you, yes. Um, yes, so at the end of uh, absolutely nightmarish uh days, nights, I don't know how long that really took all of this. But it was horrendous uh, from, you know, the the beating by Patrick to the molestation by the children to the the um, torture by Nihul and the children and then to the exit ritual, uh, you could say, which I had to go through. And then knowing that I did not want to live at all, I was ready to go, having this near-death experience. So I, as soon as I was on the other side, first of all, I was in the presence of the greatest love, 
which is what I had been seeking, of course, this whole time. And that love is just indescribable and also real, more real than anything else. So now I get this glimpse of truth beyond this veil, perhaps. This, this, is, this is what is real. This extreme bliss, which is this pure uh, spark um, of divine, you know, uh, being a bliss, um, that reality. So I'm, I'm given this experience. I meet my teacher and I have this profound experience. I'm, I'm greeted by a joke. And my teacher um, speaks to me in, I guess, what is my unique um, attraction to humor and beauty and intelligence. So these qualities are uppermost in him as he, as he addresses me. So I am very drawn to him. Uh, and I'm... I'm, I'm having this experience where I'm being given information also to help me in life, uh, just, to, just to help me because I, I need to heal. And without this experience, how would I know what to strive for? One night in October 1974, during a pedophilic orgy in a villa outside Brussels, Annika was strapped down to an enormous butcher block table and tortured to the verge of death. Thinking that she was dead, she experienced a universal blissful consciousness and saw a figure inside a source of light with long black flowing hair, who she refers to as the teacher. In his eyes, she saw, and I quote, the most extraordinary pride, which is the willpower the inexorable determination of one who never gave up in his search for the truth. Realizing that she wasn't dead, she learned that at the last second, her lover-slash-abuser, Patrick Hammers, had made a deal to buy her freedom. He then picked up her shattered, bloody body and drove her home, advising her to leave home as soon as possible, leave Belgium and move to London, Paris, or New York, learn English, get an education, marry a man her same age, never speak up about the network, and forget everything. She followed his advice and kept silent about the network for 39 years. But in 2013, she started speaking out. In addition to being an author and speaker, including delivering TED Talks, Annika now helps others heal from organized child abuse. Her powerful message is that elite pedophilia is the world's best-kept secret, and the only weapons the powerful have is fear, and that our weapons must be the opposite, love, understanding, forgiveness, and a clear vision of what a world looks like that is ruled by compassion, in which each person is truly considered equal. It's with great appreciation for her honesty, strength, and courage that we name Annika Lucas, today's hero behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our producers are myself, Frank Hobbs, and Apex Media. 
If you haven't already, please download, rate, review, and subscribe. And check out some of our past episodes, such as the Epic Battle of Mirbat. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines.